morning and welcome to Church at Home. My name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. If you're with us for the first time, we're delighted that you've joined us. Uh, We're currently in a series in the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest and in many ways the clearest of the four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. If today's talk leaves you with questions, uh, can I encourage you to visit our website www.sbbc.org.za and on the home page there's a contact tab where you can leave your details and someone will get back in touch with you in the course of the week. But now as we begin, can I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 20 through to verse 35. Mark, chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions, unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, in these very difficult and unsettling times, we ask that you would have mercy on us. Please draw near to us this morning. Change us where we need to be changed. Renew us where we need to be made new. And open our eyes to see Jesus as he was and is and always will be. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Some years ago, uh, we did an online search to try and trace our family tree. Uh, Some of the names were very familiar. We knew who they were, we'd met them, we even had photographs of some of them. But it also revealed some fascinating characters we'd never met, including a famous London shoemaker, an opera singer, and a whole group of people who could trace their relatives back to Maryland in the 1700s. Now that was a complete surprise. We weren't expecting it. Now this morning uh, we're looking at who's in Jesus' family. 
and there are many surprises here too. Some of the people we would expect to find are left out, they're disqualified, while the, uh, there are other people who are included who are rather unusual. They're not necessarily religious types, but they all have one thing in common. As we begin, uh, let me first remind you of the context. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that uh, we saw Jesus faced by crowds of very needy people. And in that critical situation, he chose just 12 apostles. And I don't know whether I made the point sufficiently clearly that this was a major, major turning point. Because Jesus' response to the colossal needs of the world was to transform that small group of people and make them part of the solution. And whilst, of course, the ministry of the apostles was unique, Jesus still does this today. His response to the vast needs and the problems we're all trying to deal with at the moment is to choose men and women and to transform them and make them part of the solution. Now, having seen Jesus choosing and transforming the apostles last week, we shouldn't be surprised this week to see that Mark's concern is to show who the true people of God really are. Who are the members of Jesus' family? Now, we know that the words of Scripture are inspired. But can I say that it's important to remember that the structure of Mark's book is also inspired. And one of the ways that you will be able to read your Bible more effectively is to keep asking the question, why does this particular passage come here? Why would Mark, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, place these two stories side by side? So last week we saw Jesus choose his first people, and this week we're going to see who are the people of God in the world today. And it's a very important question, because they're not who we, who we might think. And my hope is that you'll experience this morning what I've experienced in preparing, which is a fairly searching test as to what constitutes the people of God. And I hope that this will cause some people this morning to be so unsettled that they'll come to Christ for the first time. But I guess for most people listening or watching, I hope you'll find yourself saying, I am just so thankful that Jesus Christ has done this work in me. So, as we look at the section beginning at chapter 3, verse 20, we're going to see two groups of people who are not in Jesus' family. And then at the end, we'll discover who are the true members of this family. So, firstly, the members of Jesus' family are not controlling conformists. They are not controlling conformists. As the passage begins, Jesus entered a house, and again another large crowd gathered. And we're told that his family hear of his behaviour, uh, that he's teaching and healing so much that there's no time to sit down and have a proper meal. And to the family, you see, this looks like fanaticism. And they say, he's out of his mind. They're clearly embarrassed. They're clearly also concerned for his welfare. Because in the first century in Palestine, the family was a very close-knit group. If you had one member of the family who was off the rails, or perhaps rather strange, it affected everyone in the family 
far more than it does today. But even today, we know what it's like when a non-Christian couple have children, and uh, perhaps in the teens, the children go off to a Christian camp and get converted. And uh, you hear the same kind of reaction when the mother or father are talking to their friends and saying, you know, we're not really sure what's happened to our son, but he's become extremely serious about his religion. Or, we don't know what's happened to our daughter, but she suddenly seems to have gone a bit overboard. But actually what's happened is she's been converted. So here is Jesus' family hearing of his behaviour and they've come to rescue him. But actually the word in verse 21 says they've come to take charge of him or to seize him. Now wherever that word is used in Mark's Gospel it's always negative. In chapter 6 Herod arrested or took charge of John the Baptist. Same word. In chapter 12, it says the authorities looked for a way to arrest Jesus or take charge of him. Same word. And here, his own family come to arrest Jesus or seize him. And uh, in verse 31, they're standing outside the house and they call him. Uh, Either they can't get in or they don't want to go in and they call him which very interestingly is the same word Mark uses of Jesus calling disciples. We've seen that Jesus is the one who calls people. But here are his family saying, no, we are calling you. We're calling you to come out and we're going to take you home and sort you out so that in a few weeks you'll get your head straight. So it's very clear, isn't it, that that at this point the family of Jesus are not believers. They don't understand. Despite everything that Mary has been told, she hasn't really grasped it. And the rest of the family are clearly not surrendered to Christ. They don't understand what Jesus has come to do or why he's doing it. They might appreciate certain parts of his life, perhaps his growing fame and reputation. But at the same time, Jesus is rocking the boat some pretty important people are saying that Jesus is a troublemaker. He's a threat to their way of doing things. He's not conforming. And the family are finding this rather embarrassing and they want to control him. They want to take charge. And at the end of the passage, in verses 33 and 34, Jesus utterly rejects their policy. In verse 33, he simply says, "'Who is my family?' And it's obviously not his mother, his brothers and possibly sisters who are waiting outside the house. Now, just think about this with me, will you? Because this is an astonishing thing, that his real biological family are not his family. His real family, the family that he recognises as family, is supernatural. So, if you were reading these verses back in the first century, this would have been a tremendous shock If you were hoping that Mark was going to show how important Jesus' biological family are, uh, that his mother should be shown tremendous respect, and that his brother James was perfectly qualified to become the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, you would think that Mark would have left out these embarrassing verses. But you see, this is what happened. And Mark thinks it's important, we know it. Now I also think this proves the truthfulness of the Bible. (coughs) When (coughs) scholars get together, especially non-Christian scholars, and they're trying to work out 
which parts of the Bible they like and which parts of the Bible they don't like, what they do is they set up a series of tests. And they have maybe 10 or 12 of these tests. Now remember that these men are not interested in the supernatural nature of Scripture. They just want to discover uh, which parts of the Bible were there in the original text and which were not. And some of the tests are things like this. Uh, Does this idea come up a few times in the New Testament? Because if it does, that is a sign of truthfulness. We can accept that this was in the original text. Or, uh, does it fit the customs of the day and what we know about the history at that time? That too would be a very good sign. And believe it or not, one of the tests they apply is actually called the embarrassment test. They'll ask the question, is this an embarrassing text? So, for example, the crucifixion is given tremendous weight by non-Christian scholars because it is seen to be so embarrassing that the king, the Messiah, would be crucified. And they say this is so embarrassing, it clearly must have happened. And here, as the family of Jesus shows such embarrassing ignorance about his identity and his mission, this is seen by non-Christian scholars as evidence of its truthfulness. This really did happen. The family of Jesus saw themselves as needing to control him. Now in the same way, there are plenty of people today who will say, yes, I do think there's a God, but I'm pretty much in control of what he says and what he does and what he expects. In other words, these people would like to believe they can dictate to the God they say they believe in. And some people will say this even more starkly than that. They'll say, I know that (coughs) you Christian people say this, but I say that. Yes, I've heard the Bible says this, but actually I prefer that. And here is this family trying to take charge of Christ, wanting to seize him, call him, control him. Now friends, if you think you can dictate to Christ, think again. You might as well try to dictate to the oceans or to the planets, which of course would be absurd. Not least, of course, because the ocean and the planets take their dictation from Jesus. So please be very careful of this particular syndrome. Because at this point, Jesus effectively turns his back on his family. He rejects them. If they think that he can be controlled, they are seriously mistaken. Now friends, this is a very important lesson. It's a very important lesson for those outside the church, many of of whom we know and love, but who think that they can tell God what's true and what's not, what he should be like and what he shouldn't be like, uh, how he should be and how he shouldn't be. There are plenty of people who think like that. And this is also important for those people who think they've got some kind of human link or connection with Christianity, which entitles them to think and do as they please. So, for example, it's the person who might say, well, my uncle was a bishop. And often you see what they're really saying is, don't hassle me. Uh, We had a bishop in the family. I know all this. But you see, the fact that your uncle was a bishop is never going to save you. Or perhaps it's the person who says, 
I got the scripture prize at school, uh, meaning I'm pretty smart. You can't teach me anything I don't already know. Well, that's not going to save you either. And I think it's very hard to overstate how much sadness and error is built into that way of thinking. And Jesus doesn't take any notice of it at all, and we need to recognise that this morning. You can also see, I think, how very lonely it must have been for Jesus that his own family don't understand, don't believe, don't support, don't cooperate. In fact, they seem to be completely opposed to him. And of course, many Christians have had to suffer the sadness of a family who don't understand or support or help. Uh, So sometimes today you find young people going into the ministry to the disappointment of their parents. And then the parents turn up and they hear them give their first sermon. And afterwards they might say something like this, Well done. Jolly good speech. Uh, We've no idea what you were talking about, but well done. And I think there's a real sadness and a loneliness in not having your family with you. And that's part of what Jesus is experiencing here. Now the miraculous thing of course is that some of Jesus' family were later transformed. So according to Acts chapter 1 Mary was converted and joined the early church. And according to 1 Corinthians James, the brother of Jesus met the risen Christ and was converted and in due course became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But you see our passage is reminding us this morning that there are no human connections that guarantee a place in God's family. Membership of God's family is only by a supernatural work of grace. But when that work of grace comes, you really are welcomed in. So have we got this clear? Jesus' family are not controlling conformists. Secondly, Jesus' family are not hostile professionals. They are not hostile professionals so in verse 21 uh, the family the controlling conformists think Jesus is mad and in verse 22 the religious leaders the hostile professionals think that he's bad now if you think about it that is an outrageous conclusion to come to because as we've been following the ministry of Jesus we've seen him heal people we've seen him love people We've seen him deliver people from satanic control. And now these educated religious professionals are saying, we know all that, and here's our conclusion, he's working with the devil. Now nobody has clarified the picture here better than C.S. Lewis. And he said this, what are we to make of Jesus Christ? A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic or the devil or the Son of God. It seems obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor an evil being. Therefore, however strange or terrifying it might seem, he was and is God. And the greater question, therefore, is this. What does he intend to make of us? So, the religious leaders see the evidence and they decide that Jesus is evil, that he's in partnership with the devil, that he's bad. And uh, what Jesus is saying to them here is not only what you're saying is illogical but your hostility, if you continue with it, is actually unforgivable. 
Now, how are we to understand this? Because, of course, we thought that all sins could be forgiven. But Jesus says that what these hostile professionals are saying about him is actually unforgivable. And we need to think about this. Notice first that the religious professionals in Jesus' day cannot deny his powerful miracles. Did you notice that? Uh, They can only decide where they think these things come from. The miracles themselves are undeniable. But these men decide that the source is the devil. Now I think that's very interesting because whilst there are people today who uh, say the miracles are fictional, here we are reading in the historical documents that the enemies of Jesus actually believed in those miracles. They couldn't deny them. All they could do is say that they're demonic. Second, their conclusion is illogical. Now, this is terribly basic. It's basically a primary school level problem. So there's the question uh, on the question paper and it goes like this. Uh, If you're on the football team and all the members of your football team tackle all the other members of your football team, are you going to win the match? Answer, probably not. Or, if you're a soldier and all the people in your army start shooting all the other people in your army, is that good? Answer, probably not. That's how simple this is. And here Jesus says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, it will fall. It cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, it will fall. It cannot stand. And if Satan attacks Satan, he will fall. So Jesus says, when I'm driving out demons, what I'm doing cannot possibly be from the devil. Thirdly, please notice that the devil is a real person. In verse 27, Jesus calls him the strong man. He's real, he's strong, but he is under control. We might even say he is a puppet of Christ. And I think these are key things for us to know about the devil. Yes, he is real. And I do hope you don't take a different view from Jesus about the devil. He's also strong, so he's not to be despised or forgotten. And a lot of the troubles in our lives are due to the devil, who we forget. And he's also under control. He is bound. And in the New Testament, at the cross of Christ, he's beaten and defeated by Jesus. Not yet eliminated, but as Colossians 2.15 reminds us, he's already defeated by Christ. And the fourth, fourth thing we learn from Jesus in verse 28 is that all sins can be forgiven. Now this is a very wonderful thing, especially if you're listening this morning, and there's something on your conscience that's really been weighing you down. My friend, that can be forgiven. It can be washed away, it can be covered. That's what Jesus says. Bishop J.C. Ryle, I think, has a very helpful comment on this. He says, quote, Sins of youth, sins of old age, of head and hand and tongue and imagination, of broken commandments, of idolatry, of backsliding, all may be forgiven. And that is the greatness of the cross of Christ. It can all be forgiven. It can all be washed away. It can all be covered. But fifthly, there is a sin, one sin, which is to face the work of Jesus Christ and to call it evil. 
and to reject utterly what God offers. And that, says Jesus, is unforgivable. unforgivable. Because as one writer says, quote, you're not just facing the work of Jesus and his offer and saying no. You are slamming the door in his face. And Jesus is saying, you see, that if the opposition continues like that, year after year, decade after decade, you can't be surprised if you find you've actually turned your back on salvation. But sixthly, therefore, this sin is not a particular word or a particular deed which we all easily fall into and which can be forgiven. So, if you're listening this morning and you want forgiveness, you have not forfeited salvation. If you want salvation, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. And if the idea of committing the unpardonable sin worries you, let me assure you, you haven't committed it. So, here are two groups who should be with Jesus. That's what we would expect. His biological family and the religious experts. But they're both against him. And uh, we're being taught the very simple point that these people are not his people. The people that you would most expect to be in the family of Jesus are excluded. But now think about this. Uh, imagine you contacted me after the service this morning and you said to me, we want you to know that your family are utterly against you and we want you to know that there isn't a single pastor in Cape Town who agrees with you. They're all against you. That would be a very isolating position. But you see, if you were to go to Jesus and say, your family doesn't understand you, they're opposed to you, on the basis of the verses in front of us, Jesus would say to you, that is very, very sad, but I have a new family. And if we went up to Jesus and said, you know, you need to know that all the religious leaders are against you, Jesus would say, yes, that's very, very sad, but I've already chosen a new leadership. Because you see, he's already taken the initiative, because in last week's passage, he chose the apostles, his first people. So here, when we find these two groups are not his people, we are not to think his plan has been derailed because he's already chosen his people, he's already taken the initiative. So, if the family of Jesus are not controlling conformists who dictate and decide what they will and will not believe, and if they are not hostile professionals who hate the liberty and the freedom Jesus is bringing, who on earth are they? Well, at the end of the passage, Jesus reveals that the true members of his family are humble listeners. Humble listeners. In verse 33, Jesus asks, Who are my mother and my brothers? Who are my real family? And he answers his own question in verse 34. It's the people who are sitting around me, listening and doing. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon had a very helpful illustration about how helpless we clergy are, and indeed how every Christian is, to change anybody we'd like to change. He, he says that uh, we're rather like funeral directors. He says, yes, we know how to dress a corpse. He says, we know how to do the makeup on a corpse. We just can't revive the corpse, because only Jesus can revive a corpse. 
And what Jesus is teaching us here is that there's a group of people that he's brought from death to life. He's transformed them. And the marks of this transformation are in verses 34 and 35. And I do hope you'll look at these with me because these verses are very wonderful and very important. These are the signs of a truly transformed person. These are the signs of somebody who is truly a member of Jesus' family. And if this is you, it means you are seated, you are listening, and you are seeking to do God's word. You've got that? Seated, listening, doing. Now, I do hope you might test yourself with this, because if you do, you'll find that it is a real miracle to be brought into the position of sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his word, saying, yes, I really like this word, and I want to do it. There really is a part of me that wants to do Jesus' word. Now, friends, we don't see much of this in Cape Town, do we? We don't see lots of people sitting at Jesus' feet, truly, really loving his word and actually doing it. We see plenty of people in Cape Town who are very restless, looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. They might go to church occasionally, but they block the word of God in their lives, and they do the opposite of God's word, thinking that's where true freedom can be found. But the truth is, it's always a dead end. What about the nominal Christian, uh, the person who is kind of loosely linked to the church? Well, they're often very nice. Uh, they join us for occasional services. Uh, their children might come to Sunday school. They sing the same hymns, we have coffee together, and they are lovely, lovely people. But the question I'm asking is this. Do they actually love to sit at the feet of Jesus, to listen to his word, and then actually do it? Because that takes a miraculous transformation. Now, if that's not happening in the life of somebody listening this morning, please will you check yourself? If you don't delight to sit at Christ's feet and hear his word and seek to do it, all the other stuff you're doing is irrelevant. But if those things really are present in your life this morning, then praise God, because that is a divine transformation. It is a genuine work of grace. And the reason this is able to happen is because Jesus takes himself steadily and with determination to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, he takes on himself our rebellion, our hostility, our sin, our opposition, and our death, and he deals with all of it. He pays for it. And he produces in us a brand new life, a remarkably transformed life. Not perfect, not always obedient, but there is definitely a newness which says... Jesus is my master and I want to sit, his, sit at his feet and I want to learn from him and I want to put his word into practice as best I possibly can. And in these very difficult days, I am going to do my best to serve him and his people as he gives me strength. Now, can you say that? Because if you can, that means you are a member of Jesus' family. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by his death, Jesus has made it possible for us to join your family. Help us not to take this privilege for granted, but change our hearts and make us humble listeners to your life-giving word. And help us not to be listeners only, 
but to put it into practice. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well done,